and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the things we hold sacred and how we can better understand people who are different from ourselves. Each week, I talk to someone who's involved in some way in our public debates from a really wide range of backgrounds, beliefs and perspectives and ask them what they've learnt about engaging across our tribal divides. This week, you'll hear a conversation I had with Casper Takail. Casper describes his work as supporting, emboldening and accompanying people to be who they are called to be. He's an executive director of On Being, a ministry innovation fellow at Harvard and the author of How We Gather and Care of Souls. He's also the co-host of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast, which last year had 7 million downloads. I spoke to him about his journey from climate activism to divinity school, the difficulty of using the word God and why he, respectively, doesn't find Jesus that interesting. It was a real privilege talking to him, and I hope you enjoy listening. Casper, I'm going to ask you our standard first question, which you may find easier to wrap your head around than some of my guests, because the sacred is not an alien concept, and you spend a lot of time thinking about sacred texts and sacred practices. And I hope you've had a chance to think a little bit about sacred values. So uh, the premise of this is to help people understand how our different sacred values motivate the way we engage in the world and help us build empathy with each other. But it does take a bit of self-reflection, a bit of digging. So can you tell me, or can you guess, what you think your sacred value or sacred values might be. Yeah, I think about this a lot. <laughs> I think the thing that really stands out to me is connection and connection in a kind of multi-layered way about connection with my authentic self, with other people, with the natural world and and with the transcendent, uh, what we might call God. Years ago, I, I had a wonderful mentor who helped me come up with this phrase of living in a world of joyful belonging. <laughs> and I think that that really feels like the the North Star in my life in the sense of trying to find ways to to build structures and build relationships of belonging in which everyone feels that they, uh, you know, they have a place that that they have a, a home in this world and that that home is not necessarily a building or an institution, but more like a sense of just inherent belonging in who we are and whose we are as we make our way through through life. So yeah, I think a lot about that kind of the art of sacred connection. I think that would be it for me. That's beautiful. To build on it, and I haven't asked anyone else this before, so forgive me, or uh, this is an experiment, but can you call to mind an instance where uh, you felt that sacred value threatened and it's helped crystallize it for you? We had a sociologist on who does a lot of work around the sacred and she says it's very difficult to tell what your sacred value is until it's under pressure and then you get that almost disgust reaction um, at it. At, at that threat towards it. Does anything come to mind? Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why I care so much about it is because I've had formative experiences where I felt it and then I haven't felt it. I grew up in a really uh, a, a loving, you know, warm home full of life. My mum had a bed and breakfast. I had three younger sisters. Just there were, there were always people around. And I went to a Waldorf Steiner school, which was, you know, filled with ritual and engaging the elements and song and creativity and, you know, a real sense of, of kind of our family being, you know, within this wider network of, of families and, and our natural landscape which I grew up in in Sussex. So it, it felt like this really strong experience of belonging. But when I, I think I was about nine or 10, I really started to feel like there was something that that wasn't 
kind of clicking in some way. And so I asked to leave the school I was at and went to this very posh English prep school with uh, sports day and pink blazers and, you know, everyone driving the nice car around to pick up their Johnny or Sally or whatever, you know, whatever the child's name was. And I came out a, a few years later in, in high school, but those kind of 10 to 14, uh, you know, age years were, were really, really difficult. And, and particularly because they were isolating. And I think because I didn't feel, I didn't have the language yet. I didn't have the reference points and maybe couldn't quite come to terms with my own sexuality and my own experience that that sacred connection felt like it, it was broken in some way, that there was something wrong with me or wrong with the world that made, made me not connect. Um, that, and, and I, I just, kept so much private. I, I, I became much more, you know, less talkative, more aggressive. I developed trichotillomania where you kind of, you know, you, you pull out your own hair. So I looked like a, a burns unit victim nearly, just no eyebrows, no no eyelashes. Um, and it, I, th- I think that was kind of that embodied feeling of that sacred connection being broken. And so as I rebuilt it with, you know, great love and affection from from everyone around me, just about th- that, that primal experience of that foundation being threatened and feeling like it was not there. I think this shaped everything I do, to be honest. <laughs> um, it's just such a, it was so weird. I was home over the summer and, uh, you know, I, I have an amazing family and wonderful parents, but being back in my childhood home, kind of with, with this awareness, with this growing awareness that that time was so formative, kind of regressed completely. <laughs> and I just was looking through photo albums and that that was exactly my reaction. I was just like, oh, I just want to give my, my youngest self this kind of enveloping hug so um yeah thinking still in that um memory place really of your childhood were there any other really formative ideas you've spoken so beautifully about this sense of belonging and connectedness was there anything else whether religious or spiritual or political or philosophical that you think has really shaped you and the way you are in the world i mean i i grew up in ostensibly a secular home you know we didn't go to church or or any sort of religious community but the more i've looked back on it the more i have seen elements of what you could call religious. Um, if, if you look at it that way, you know, I, I mentioned the school, which had such a, such a strong community and still lived within the, the, Christian calendar. So, you know, we celebrated Michaelmas, we celebrated Advent and Christmas and Pancake Day and Easter and all of these had their own rituals. You know, we 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 all wear we all wore white on Whitsun and we danced around the Maypole on May 1st and we made lanterns for Michaelmas and sang to the cows on Christmas Eve in the local farm. So so, you know, the experience of living within this calendar calendar of time, I think, was it was a really important rhythm to be in as a child. I think having that safety of of, of knowing what was going to come as the months passed and knowing what we do when that when that happens was a way of feeling was feeling that connection you know not not just with people around me but also with people through time and I went to you know Dutch summer camps where there was the same kind of you know camping out on the on the heath and swimming in the river and singing these old songs that j- just gave you a sense that you know my experience is part of something bigger and so you know when when you have those which I think we all share those kind of transcendent moments of a night sky or a bonfire or just something where where our own selves are descended into something much more mysterious. There was some, if not language for it, but there were rituals for it. You know, I learned that you can light a candle and just 
you know, hold it and look out of the window. And that that in itself is a response to that sense of mystery or, or greater presence, which now having gone through divinity school, I can be like, oh, yes, that's an experience of God. <laughs> but, but that was, you know, I never had that language. And definitely as a gay kid, I was extremely reactive against religious institutions and felt um, for good reason that that was, you know, religion was irrelevant or cruel and had, had nothing to give me. And so, you know, I, th- I think ironically, my political experience was more with the institutional church, as it were, and, and more of my spiritual experiences were among uh, an unchurched community and, and out in the natural world. I love the idea of, you know, that the, obviously the standard ritual that everyone does of singing to the cows on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it's, it's wonderful. It still happens. You know, we go every Christmas and you, you gather outside the stables and there's, you know, sheep music passed around and everyone starts with once Royal David City and you move from the cows to the pigs to the chickens. We even sing to the bees since they were installed a couple of years ago. That is so brilliant. Um, so we're going to try and trace this trajectory from a sort of unchurched, not, not kind of explicitly religious or particularly kind of God saturated childhood, but a very uh, childhood with lots of ritual and meaning to divinity school, but you have a, you go via climate change activism. What led you into that? Yeah. Uh, You know, it was a surprise to me as well. Um, You know, obviously grew up uh, in in around nature, but I was very much an indoor child. You know, I longed for, um, you know, we'd go camping as a family and I longed for a hotel room with a white fluffy towel. You know, I was definitely not an outdoorsy kid and didn't have a kind of a primal, you know, a sense of protecting my environment. That that was never really a conscious experience. But I, um, I read Naomi Klein's book, No Logo, when I was 17. And being in this really wealthy school, and frankly, with a dad who worked in the city, that book was kind of channeled all my angsty teenage anger at the world and gave it some kind of economic or political philosophy to wrap it in. And so I wanted to kind of take on the man uh, and really was involved with trade justice activism first, kind of thinking, you know, helping to bring fair trade to my campus at university and and going to Brussels to lobby MEPs about, you know, trade uh, negotiations. But I had an incredible opportunity to go with WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, to the Arctic. They brought 20 young people from 10 different countries, and I was lucky enough to be one of the two from the UK. And we spent 10 days on this boat, essentially around the Norwegian archipelago of Svalbard, and saw polar bears and met climate scientists and really dug into understanding what the changes up in the Arctic might mean for changes in my life. And, you know, both my parents are Dutch and two thirds of the of the Netherlands is under sea level. And so really starting to connect the dots between the science, which frankly, I'd never really understood. Um, and then the politics in terms of what needed to happen and by when in terms of, you know, emission targets and things like that. And suddenly I, I saw how other young people around the world were engaging with this emerging scientific and political reality. And I felt like I, I can do something. I can, I can be part of this. And so kind of moved from campus level activism to trying to shift national and and international policy. And, you know, I don't know how successful we were, but in terms of, 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 you know, trying to influence the United Nations negotiations. But what I do know we were successful in as a group of young people that really came around this idea together was shifting our own sense of what agency we had in the world. And the fact that there there is just a great joy of living life with more integrity. Um, You know, we'd have these endless meetings, 16 of us probably at, at, at that point, about 
about strategy and about, you know, what, what should we do? And just that feeling of being together, trying to to take on something big and important was was an amazing experience. And I, I, you know, at that point for me, it was about climate change. But I look back at it now and I think already the seeds of, you know, how do you build community? How do you shape a life of, of meaning and purpose and, and justice? Those are already kind of taking shape even amidst the, you know, reading briefings about CO2 emissions. <laughs> Obviously, the... The challenge of climate change is one of the flashpoints or divides perhaps in our public conversations and that challenge of how we engage across differences of opinion on what's happening and, and what needs to happen uh, is what you know people who are still working full time in the climate movement and lots of us who just feel concerned about it are facing. What did you learn particularly about that public conversation piece and campaigning and seeking to really change hearts and minds on something? I mean, the, the hard truth is I just felt like we failed um, and, and that really sent me into a slump. The uh, Copenhagen talks of 2009 were really a, a low point where I felt like, you know, I, I had done everything that seemed to be possible in terms of, you know, emailing everyone and organizing demonstrations and lobbying decision makers and trying to build a rational argument. And, you know, friends of mine were on hunger strike. They were in a wheelchair and had been only drinking water for like 40 days by the end of the negotiations. So I, I remember sitting in a room and talking about, should we issue a bomb threat? You know, because the world isn't paying attention. Should we, you know, we, we were really kind of at the edge. And, and I think one of the things that I realized is when when it's positioned as just another issue, uh, you know, next to the economy and next to, um, you know, terrorism or whatever it is uh, that's on the public mindset, that, that kind of engaging with climate change and, and the effects it's going to have and the response we need to, to orchestrate just as another issue doesn't work and because it actually goes much deeper than, you know, deciding what to spend money on. It's really a way of understanding who we are and and what we're doing here that shapes our response to it. So when we think of the world, you know, as a natural resource, then it becomes fine to think about selling, buying, using, you know, within an economic frame. If we think of the world instead, you know, Joanna Macy has this wonderful phrase, the world as lover or the world as self. You know, if we think of it as a relationship like we would have with a lover, which is tender and intimate and necessary, then, you know, you're, you're not going to strip mine. You're not going to, you know, just just destroy, just, just destroy it. But even more powerfully, if we think of the world as ourself, you know, if we expand our circle of care from our own bodies to this much more expansive understanding of, of an, a, a holistic ecosystem, then, you know, Strip mining isn't just an insult to someone else, it's actually hurting me. And so kind of being an activist within a political frame or an economic frame, it felt insufficient to the size of, of the task at hand. And so I became more and more interested in, okay, well, how do people tell different stories about the world <laughs> and who we are? Um, how, how, how do you, you know, how have movements in history changed the way that we engage with an issue in that way, you know, expanded the circle of care? And over and over again, I would come back to, you know, religious narrative or religious songs or, or religious spaces in which people would gather and, and kind of recenter themselves into this bigger story. And so I kind of started thinking about religion from a strategic angle. Like I, I, it wasn't anything about belief. I was like, how do we, how do we stop this, you know, runaway 
climate catastrophe that we're moving towards. Uh, and, and it felt like religion had something to teach me. Now, I sh- that led you to divinity school. I should say for our UK listeners that that phrase isn't always particularly familiar to us. So a divinity school is a sort of theology department at a university, right, where you've got some people training for ministry and coming from a very devotional perspective, but others just interested in it as an academic subject and everything in between. Is that a fair representation? To be, to be honest, I'd say it's even broader than that. When I first, I came to America to do a public policy degree, you know, I kind of left the nonprofit world thinking, well, I, I need to learn something new and I don't know where to go. So let me go to graduate school. And then in my, my, my first year in the policy program, I heard about the Divinity School and I just thought it was for Catholic priests. You know, I had, I had no idea. And it turns out that the did that the Divinity School at Harvard is this actually super broad exploration of culture and meaning um, and has exactly that mix that you were describing of an academic rigor, but also with a, a professional training, you know, people who might be training um, to become a rabbi or, or a minister of some sort, but also chaplains in the military, people who um, might work, you know, on mental health questions, um, even people going to law or medicine or business who are interested in this kind of relationship between building community, developing meaning, ritual. And, and I was coming at it from this from this question of, of, of more of a political perspective. So what it felt like coming into that place was like, oh, this is where all the secrets are kept. Like, why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> you know, Because it was like, this is how you can use music to move people through an emotional kind of cycle. You know, this is what liturgy means. This is how, you know, you can engage with text for people to reflect more consciously on how they're living. And I was like, oh my God, all I felt like I had was, you know, meetings and email. <laughs> and this was this like much richer toolbox of, of yeah, doing the kind of work that I cared about. So it felt like tapping into this hidden stream of wisdom uh, and practice that, that could help me do the work that I cared about. And I think what was special about Harvard was that there was no assumption of any religious identity or belief. So I came in calling myself an atheist because I was like, well, I don't believe in a Santa in the sky who, you know, sends gay people to hell. So I'm not religious. Uh, But the more time I spent in the divinity school, the more I realized that what religion really is about is a much richer and complex and, and a frankly more beautiful thing than what I had experienced it to be. So yeah, I, I wish there were divinity schools like this in the UK because I actually think plenty of people across whatever language and identity they might give themselves would be fascinated with this kind of approach to, to learning and being. Well, obviously, one of the things we're trying to do here is to just make some of that wisdom and riches more accessible in in formats that people can encounter. And I've really valued your work and we'll come on to your podcast. But uh, the thing I see... uh happening there is really uh, you as a bridge person in the work of On Being and Harry Potter and the Sacred Text as building bridges between these communities that are often seen as quite separate of religious people and non-religious people. And while in the UK, we might have someone like Alan de Botton say, I'm very much an atheist and clearly this is all gobbledygook, but here's a few things we can like cherry pick that might be useful for us and something like um, Religion for Atheists, which I don't yeah. think is, but I'm actually a massive fan of Alan de Botton and his much of his other writing, but that's not my favourite. Whereas it feels like you have um, undertaken a much more sustained and engaged translation between the two and moving between the two. Um, So I'd love to just hear what have you learnt about how to build bridges between those different communities and how could each side, what could could we be doing differently, whether we would call ourselves non-religious or religious to better encounter each other on a human level? Mm, Well, thank you for that. First of all, that's very generous. Um, You know, the, the reason why I do it is I just think it works. <laughs> I, I, I'm really 
you know, I, I, I think a lot about the people I most want to be like, you know, when, when you're, you're just around someone, you're like, gosh, one day I want to grow up like them. And the more I started to, to be around, you know, people like nuns who'd been living in community every day for 50 years or, you know, uh, a Methodist minister in Indiana who just went out into the world listening to people. And I was like, I I just want to be more like you. And I realized like, oh, there's really something about this idea of kind of spiritual maturity. And and that can come, you know, whether you're religious or not. But I, I definitely realized that people who have spent intentional time and effort to to grow their souls in some way to 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 become more generous to cultivate the virtues in their life that 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 really um yeah the exp- the experience of of watching those people changed me and i was like how do i become more like that i want to i want to go to that kind of school and so i th- i think the bit that i've learned about trying to bridge between religious and non-religious people is that there's something beneath the language and the reference points that we clash on that really does feel aligned um so often there's real mismatches in in the perceptions that people have of each other. You know, I thought religion was about belief, um, which is a very Protestant understanding of what religion is about. And when you look at most people practicing religion around the world, it's much more about ritual and family and tradition um, and even wisdom than our kind of, you know, Eurocentric understanding of, of, of what religion is. So that was the first thing to kind of get beyond and be like, okay, there's all these other things. Like I love to sing. Um, I love to sit in circle and have real conversations with people. Um, and to think of those in some ways as kind of spiritual technologies in a way that help us build lives of meaning and belonging. Um, and then from, you know, from, from the religious perspective, often people look out at the secular world and think of it as somehow fallen or, you know, just, just wholly wrong. And yet I saw people gathering, you know, whether it was in fitness groups at, at a CrossFit, box or whether it was in maker spaces or, um, you know, all sorts of creative um, endeavors, you know, people putting on a play together like that, that creative impulse and that feeling of making something beautiful in the world together with other people I see as a profoundly religious experience in some way. Um, And so I felt like I was kind of standing between these two worlds. And I I wanted to say to the religious people like, hey, no, look, secular people are, 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 are doing everything they can with the resources they have to build a world of of meaning and belonging. And from the secular perspective to the religious people, um, I was kind of saying, look, you know, although they they might use strange words and talk about kingdom or whatever it is that feels kind of weird, um, actually, they've really got some tools that can help you do the thing that you care about. And so I was just lucky enough to be exposed, I think, to to both and see the value in each. And, now, you know, I, I think, in fact, I, I try not to talk too much about whether I'm religious or non-religious, because frankly, neither neither label at this point feels very helpful. It, it feels like you're creating divides before, you know, the, the perceptions are so strong. Um, and I don't really know where I fit, Ethan. Like, it's not just a choice. It's an, it's an experienced reality. You know, I'm not a member of a church, but I definitely have a lot of spiritual practices. And this is you know, I, I, I've come to experience my my world differently because of the language that's been given to me. So, you know, even a word like God is is so polarizing, especially in the UK. And what we mean by it is so different that I just I try not to say it until we've really clarified what we mean. <laughs> Well, that was, uh, you've, you've semi-answered two of my questions. One was, do you have anything that feels comfortable for how you would describe yourself now? And it's, it sounds like you don't, and that's totally valid. Um, and the other really is about this, and I, I, I end up calling it the G-bomb, because it does feel like the God word and the God question is one of the most difficult 
pieces of this, how we engage with people who um, believe and belong and behave differently from ourselves. And there's a sort of bit of a backstory to this because one of our previous podcast guests, Tamandra Harkness, who is a wonderful maths and stats communicator uh, and an atheist. But we first got talking because she said on a BBC Radio 4 production called Future Proofing About Faith that she was frustrated that religious people would never talk to her about God. And I said, oh, you know, I'll talk to you about God. Come on the podcast. But as it happens, I really just wanted to listen to her. So I didn't talk to her about God. Um, and then we went to the pub afterwards and she said, you promised to talk about God and we haven't. And I tried to unpack for her some of the difficulties around that, which is this problem of what do we mean by it? You know, God is not a God is not a name. You know, in the Bible, it's quite clear that we're talking quite specifically about a God with a backstory and a history and a personality. But talking about it without knowing what someone else's baggage or associations is gets you quite into dangerous territory quite quickly. And I think there's also a sort of emotional intelligence thing about actually these existential questions are not things we could just think, think think about casually. You know, they can kick us quite quickly into a fight or flight situation or into some big emotions that we weren't expecting to deal with. So I'm always trying to, when I when I talk about God with people or I raise the subject, just navigate that as carefully as I can. But I think sometimes what we do because it's so difficult is we just don't do it. We talk about all the other things around the edges of religion, you know. So what has where where is it safe to talk about it because for someone like me for whom it is the fundamental question and the fundamental relationship and the you know god is the source of all love and the author of our story and you know very very much in mesh with my sacred values and and don't want to just put him in a box and say sorry this is too difficult to talk about what what are the ways where we might handle it that respect each other's internal worlds yeah no 100 percent. and i i love that you pointed to that piece on trauma because that's really important because certainly for me for for many years as soon as someone said the word god all i heard was you hate gays you know <laughs> so i was like well yeah screw you we can't actually have a conversation and and listen on on reflection i realized that is not what most of people meant but some of them certainly did so that that is not an irrational response and certainly with the history of the last you know uh however many years so th- that that instinctual kind of traumatic response to a word like that is is super important to honor and there are times when frankly it's just not helpful um so that i'll say that to start with i've heard someone use this phrase really artfully recently that i that i loved um and, and they simply said and in my language God, blah, 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 blah. And so they, 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 they acknowledged that for them, it was really important. So they could show up with integrity, but they didn't, you know, assume that that language was helpful for someone else or kind of put it as the dominant frame in the conversation. Um, so that, that was one phrase that I loved, but I mean, that the thing that I, I wish that we all kind of, I guess, maybe not agreed on, but how I think about God is that it's just a word for something that is beyond language, you know, that it, it, yeah, as you said, like it is the the foundation of our lives and the source of life itself, uh, you know, that experience of being, that is an experience of God. You need, you need some, I think, or at least I needed some <laughs> theological training to get to that point and let go of that super powerful image of like bearded man in the sky who makes decisions, you know, like that. And so for me, using he and his to describe God is still too close to that image. And so I don't, I, I use it. And, I, you know, I, we've talked about this before, kind of for, for me, the, the image of Jesus is not necessarily very helpful in helping me experience and understand God. So I, 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 I'm definitely someone who is, um, who likes that, Im- the image of kind of ultimate intimacy and ultimate transcendence at the same time. But 
maybe with, with, with different reference points than you, Liz. But um, yeah, so I, 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 th- I think about it's it's like a, I don't know, maybe a dessert at the end of a meal. I'm just making that up now. But like you, you can't necessarily start there. It might take some time to get there. And um, I can't remember which 20th century theologian it was, but someone said at some point, you know, maybe we just need to not use this God word for 50 years because it's become embedded. It's like a sponge that soaked up all this meaning that isn't actually what it is. And so the only way to, to, to move on is to kind of let it all dry out. And then, you know, once we've gone through a couple of generations of having just absence of meaning in that word, maybe we can reintroduce it again. And I, I feel like, you know, it's been it's been about 50, 60 years since that moment. So maybe it is time for, for new meaning to be embedded into it, because more and more people have grown up like me without, you know, going to church every Sunday. Uh, and so I, I do think that cultural hold on the word is is shifting. And as you say, you know, actually, all of this is it's very orthodox. <laughs> you know, when 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 Moses in, in the story of the Bible meets God, he's, he's told, you know, I am who I am or, or I will be who I will be. That's my favorite translation. You know, we, we cannot control what God is or how it shows up in our lives or in the world around us. And, you know, it, it will move in mysterious ways. And, and, and frankly, everyone will experience it in their own way. Like there is no control from any institution on how we can experience the sacred. I have to say, it's really stuck with me, that conversation we had where one, you said that the God question wasn't the most interesting to you. And I was like, gosh, that's different. And, and you said about Jesus not being a particularly helpful way in for you. And one, I just wanted to say thank you for sort of trusting me and the people that we were with enough to say that. And there's few things that have expanded my mind as much as that sentence, simply because it is so different. It is so, you know, that it, it, ha- it had the sense of what the thing that we're trying to do with this project, which is to really think yourself into someone else's shoes and really listen to where the points of difference really are, but with a kind of empathetic stance, not with a hostile stance. I did have that. and But my initial reaction was, oh, you know, that like, <laughs> what? How dare you? Like, have you even read this stuff? <laughs> Well, and I love that you were like, if I'm going to let go, I can let go of everything else. But like Jesus is the one thing that is foundational for me. And, you know, and I, and that's beautiful. I I love that, you know, and I, and I think the joy of being in a, you know, kind of coming back to the divinity school experience, the joy of being around people who, who do really firmly hold on to something is that you get to be invited into their, to their world. You know, we have this thing every Wednesday for an hour, there's a, there's a service at noon and each week it's, you know, one week it's the Methodists who host it and the next week it's the Muslims and the next week it's the Buddhists. And, and the idea for a long time was to try and find something watered down enough that everyone could handle. And it got so boring that no one went anymore. <laughs> and so they switched the model to be like, like, no, every Wednesday, we're going to go full on Buddhist. We're going to go full on Catholic. We're going to go full on Mormon, you know, and, and, and as much as we're comfortable to join them in what is real for them. And it is just, you know, it can be done badly and it becomes spiritual tourism. But this was much more an experience of being invited in and accompanying someone on an authentic spiritual practice or teaching for them. And so like, for me, that is just such a great you know that that that's spiritual riches. So if if I can join you, you know, and we, and and we can sing all out, whether it's like a great Hillsong song or whether it's you know a, a prayer or wh- whatever it is, and then you can join me in what's important to me. Like that, that's the kind of vision of a multi-religious, multi-spiritual community 
of the future. I, I, I think we're not going to have, you know, huge institutional alignment around, well, you're Catholic and I'm Jewish and like I go to synagogue and you go to mass. I think it's going to look more about... I think it's going to look more like, you know, how do we journey together and join one another in the things that are true for each other? And that that might still mean being with people like us now and then. But in a world where we have diversity in our classrooms and our families and, you know, in society at large, I think we're going to see that spiritual diversity start to be embedded institutionally as well. One of the places that that's already quite visible is on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And I have to say, I listen to your podcast a lot and I have learned more about my own traditions as sacred reading practices, listening to your podcast than I ever did. And now go away and do Lectio Divina with the Bible. I sort of vaguely knew about Lectio Divina, but there's lots of other things I didn't know about. We actually talked about um, Pardes in a team meeting the other day. I was like, I'm going to ask you a question and, and pose an answer and then you can come back to me. But uh, you do have people from all different religions on people talking um, about their Christian faith or uh, what else is going on with them. You've been going for Two years now, is that right? Yeah, we ran it as a kind of in-person class at first. And then, um, yeah, we've been going two, two and a bit years now. We're in the middle. Oh, I've just started book five, The Prisoner of Azkaban. No, Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, my God. I have to re-say that. <laughs> this is book three. Um, we're in the middle of book five, The Order of the Phoenix. And for those of you who haven't listened, it is really applying uh, religious scriptural reasoning techniques to reading Harry Potter and seeking to find meaning and uh, a space to equip us really to live better lives. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yeah, you know, we, we really started with the assumption of there are things that people love to do and and reading and especially reading fiction and reading Harry Potter is often considered, you know, it's a child's book or reading is just for pleasure. Um, and, and we really wanted to say, well, actually reading can be a formational experience. Like reading doesn't just help us kind of escape the world. It helps us to live in it. Um, and it's a place you know, when you come back to a story over and over again, whether it's, you know, if you think of Jews celebrating the Passover meal, you know, you have that story of the escape from Egypt told every year in this beautiful ritual way. And the story stays the same, but our lives change. And so suddenly you see yourself differently through this mirror of the story. And and people have been turning to Harry Potter in times of grief or difficulty or, or, or boredom for, you know, more than 20 years at this point. And so we wanted to honor that kind of intrinsic spiritual reading with with a, with a blessing really of saying like, yes, this is this is important. And also let, let's help each other give just a bit more structure to how we can do this. So we don't stay at the level of like fan theories or, or, or fan fiction, as awesome as that is, but try and go deeper and ask, you know, what does that tell us about our own lives? And, you know, how what's happening with Mrs. Weasley actually has something to say about gender in our own experience. And, um, you know, to, to, to kind of think more, more intentionally about what wisdom is in these pages or, or what wisdom we can find between ourselves as we're in conversation about these pages of the books. And your work with Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and your um, helping think about activists about how they form themselves and, and how best to engage with changing the world for the better. All of that work is, I believe, now coming under the umbrella of the wonderful On Being, who our listeners might know about um, because of an earlier interview with Krista Tippett. Tell me about that wonderful adventure. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So our kind of, um, you know, after Divinity School, uh, had our project that lived there um, and we just started to work more and more with Krista and her team. Um, we hosted an, a gathering of 
of elders and um, she came to one of our gathering of community leaders and we just found such alignment. So yeah, my work is now spun into On Being and we're, we're now the On Being Impact Lab, which is a very exciting name. And so we're really trying to think about, you know, at the heart of the On Being project is the show and um, is other uh, conversations that Krista has and, and which were, you know, vital for me going to Divinity School. If you haven't heard her interview with John O'Donoghue, it just changed my life and I highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, the, the show has always had ripples out in the world in terms of, you know, people who listen to it, who end up having a different kind of conversation with their dad or, or bring a different kind of sense of, of calm and presence to the teaching they do that day in school. And um, so our work really now is to try and think about how do we continue to nourish uh, and accompany and embolden everyone who's already part of that on being community, but also everyone who's kind of aligned with this way of thinking about the world, which Liz, I put you firmly in, in this category. And I feel like there's this incredible, but perhaps latent network of, of projects and people who who want to explore the deeper questions of life and to to collaborate really in, in imagining new social realities and call forth the courage that that is in all of us to to work towards it. So um, we're still figuring out exactly what all of that's going to look like on a very practical level. But um, it's amazing to be part of the the on being family, as it were. And this is, I realise, going to be a very difficult question, but perhaps framing it through particularly this question of tribalism and engaging across our differences. Is there any one particular thing you feel that you've learnt from reading four and a half Harry Potter books in this way? Gosh, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the first chapter is still the one that really blew me away way because when I opened the books to, to, to read it in this kind of sacred reading way, you're forced to, to look at everyone with this great lens of empathy. And suddenly looking at the Dursleys, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley are Harry's aunt and uncle, and they suddenly find an infant child on their doorstep one day um, as Harry's parents had been killed by the evil Lord Voldemort. And I suddenly saw two young parents who are, you know, stressed, at work, uh, overwhelmed by, you know, a young child, their own son. And now the, you know, Petunia's sister, who always was pretty mean to her, uh, has suddenly died. And now they're responsible for taking care of this child. And the child abuse that they inflict on Harry is unforgivable. But there is, I, I just couldn't help but have a greater expansion of empathy and understanding a little bit as to why they behaved in the way that they do. You know, they lock him in a cupboard under the stairs and things like that. And, and, it, I don't know, it was it was destabilizing to look at a book where you think you know who the goodies and the baddies are and and see it suddenly through a different way because, you know, if, if, if we can treat characters in a fictional text as sacred, that means we can treat one another as sacred. So if you have a, you know, an argument with a family member or, you know, or even frankly just walking along the streets and, and ignoring someone who's, you know, begging or or, or clearly homeless, you're kind of, you're, you're called by treating a text in this way to treat your life differently and that's still a, still an experience I'm struggling to figure out how how to be but it, but it's an invitation to to yeah to think of the world as sacred um, not just the book itself thank you so much for listening to the sacred I'm Elizabeth Oldfield our producer is Hussein Kazvani and it is a project of the think tank Theos if you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. 
Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.